It is good to see you today here, and good to see you online as well. We are continuing in our series called The Certainty. It's based out of the Gospel of Luke. It will conclude in a brief uh, piece of his second work out of Acts. And today we're looking at the topic, Certainty and Mystery. Before we get into uh, Luke, I want to uh, share a story that comes out of this book called The Power of His Presence. Uh, preacher Adrian Rogers is the author of this book, and he tells the following story that I think is quite amazing. A man who held an important position in the space industry at Cape Canaveral once came to see me concerning his wife, she was suicidal, and he wanted me to counsel with her. I said I would if he would come with her. He agreed to come. In my study, the wife poured out her story of a broken heart. She wept as she spoke of her husband's cruelty, infidelity, drunkenness, gambling. I turned to him and asked, Sir, are you a Christian? Mind you, I was not asking for information, but was turning the conversation toward Christ. He threw back his head and laughed scornfully. No, I'm an atheist, he said. Well, I responded, an atheist is one who knows there is no God. Do you know all there is to know? Of course not, he shot back. Would it be generous to say that you know half of all there is to know? Yes, that would be very generous, he muttered. Then... If you only know half of all there is to know, wouldn't you have to admit the possibility that God may exist in the body of the knowledge that you do not have? I never thought of that, he said. Well, I'm not an atheist then, I'm an agnostic. I said, now we're getting somewhere. Agnosticism means you don't know. An agnostic is a doubter. Well, that is what I am, and a big one. I don't care what size as much as what kind. Now, this quote's so good, I want to put it on the screen for you if we have it. There are two kinds of doubters, you know, honest and dishonest. The honest doubter doesn't know, but he wants to know. The dishonest doubter doesn't know because he doesn't want to know. He can't find God for the same reason a thief can't find a policeman. Which kind of doubter are you? I asked him. His face softened. Now, there's more to this story, and I hope to get back to that. Um, so this concept of doubting is what we're jumping into with the uh, reality that there's mystery and there's certainty, and we're going to jump right into uh, the thick of it, where there's a de declaration where Jesus is declaring something he wants us to know certainly, and then there's mystery right in the middle of it, and what do you do with the doubts that that creates? Now, just a reminder that all of the Gospel of Luke is based on uh, verse 4 of chapter 1, where Luke says, he's writing for this reason, so that you may know the certainty. So, Let's jump right in. Point number one is this. Many certainties are mysterious. Many certainties are mysterious. 
Now, they're mysterious until you are among the group we can call those who are in the know. I mean, you can talk about a whole bunch of things that are complicated truths, and they're very, very mysterious to those that aren't in the know, and they become more clear and more certain for those who are in the know. You can think of things like if you're not a scientist and people talk about germs or even pre-science, trying to figure out what causes disease, those were mysteries, a long time ago, and for those in the know, they're more certain. You take a look at lightning, and you try to figure lightning out. Now, for me, I'm still not in the know. It's like, wow, lightning is so mysterious to me. Uh, even now, I'm not really in the know. How does that work And so much power? and What's going on? And I've heard a little bit, but I couldn't even explain it to my grandchildren if they asked. Now, another one, wind. All these common things are certainties. They happen all the time. It's like we're certain that at the fair coming up, it'll be windy. Um, it just happens that way around here all the time, right? But uh, as I was a kid, what is certain to some people was very, well, here's what I knew about wind. I grew up as a little kid in Japan, and when it was hot and humid in Japan where we lived, at that time, I don't know about this time, everybody would flip out their little uh, folding fans and then fan themselves and that's how they kept themselves cool. So I knew exactly how wind was created and so when I saw big windstorms, it was very clear that all these trees were those fans. That those trees, when they're going like this, they're actually creating a big wind and that's what I thought caused the wind, the fans of the trees. Well, a kid trying to put things together, not in the know, you come up with wrong answers with these things that are certain for those who are in the know, but mysterious for everybody else. Now, we're going to jump into a passage of Scripture where Jesus is declaring himself. We're going to be all over the place in Luke today, by the way, and we're going to see him declaring certainties, then immediately creating mystery and declaring certainties and creating mystery, and this is part of the plan. So the first place we're going to jump in is Luke chapter 4, 16 through 17, where his ministry begins. He says, he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue. I like that. As usual. Those of us who make it a habit to come to worship or following the practice of Jesus. As usual, he came to the synagogue, just like as usual we come before God, we come to church. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. So I have here a scrappy little scroll to just illustrate Somebody brings the scroll. See, synagogues would have the scrolls. Not everybody would have the word of God in their hands. It has the scroll and they hand it to the reader and then there's going to be some teaching that takes place from the scroll. So Jesus stood up to read. And he read this. And by the way, we know and they knew where it comes from in Isaiah. And if you don't know, it's Isaiah 61 that he's reading. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's 
favor. And then he rolls the scroll back up, hands it to the attendant, and he sits down. And here's where it gets mysterious. Because for those who are in the know in Isaiah 61, he stopped mid-sentence. And so they just think, okay, stop there, mid-sentence, and he's going to now explain the teaching. But here's what comes next. So we're reading Luke 4, 20 and 21. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. I didn't have a chair up here, but that was the practice. Stand while reading, sit while teaching. He sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him especially those who wondered, why did he stop there? Because they know what came next. And he stopped in the favor. And what they want to see is the next part. And I'm not even going to tell you what it is. You'll have to look it up for yourselves. Isaiah 61. And see, what did he not say, which created this huge controversy later that we're going to read in a moment, where they're ready to kill him. Okay? Because here's what he says now about what he did say. He began by saying to them, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Now, two reactions reverberate right within the group that are right there. We read about it in verse 22. The first reaction, they were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth because he stopped with gracious words. He says, today this has been fulfilled. Now, what they haven't quite figured out is he is the one who's fulfilling this prophecy about declaring the year of favor and releasing the captives and all these miracles. He's declaring himself to be the one. But there's this other reaction. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? So there's doubt that's creeping in because of the familiarity of who he is, and perhaps a little bit of a niggling shadow of scandal from their memory of origins past. Isn't this Joseph's son? And then we read in verse 24, where he starts to just hammer on this mystery, another mystery, which... Uh, starts to create this reaction. Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. In verse 25, we read, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's day, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. Now, I've highlighted Sidon for you to let you know that is not a Jewish town. Okay? And in the Prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, and yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now, that means he's not a Jew either. Why does he highlight here that in Elijah's time and Elisha's time, they could have done these miracles in their own country, but here he does them with the Gentiles. Now, this is just like throwing gasoline on a smoldering fire. Keep in mind, 
that the nation is under domination by the Gentiles and they're waiting for the Messiah to release them from the Gentiles, to revolt. And hint, read Isaiah 61, that's what he omitted. Okay? He omits that portion of the prophecy because that portion mysteriously is not going to be fulfilled at this time. And yet that's the thing they're focused on for the Messiah's coming. And he's declaring himself as the one who is the Messiah to declare God's favor. And so hold that thought. Verse 28. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up drove him out of town and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. Yeah, this is kind of a volatile church group. (laughs) You know, it's like, whoa. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Why? John tells us in his gospel over and over again, the hour has not come yet. It's not his time. And yet this is a foreshadowing of what is to come because of the mystery that Jesus brings and the confusion that that mystery causes. And it's all part of the plan. So many certainties are mysterious. Point number two, mystery. Jesus did not fit political expectations. This affects people in our day. Still, Jesus doesn't fit political expectations as it affected people in that day and it affected good people of that day, even John the Baptist, which we have already been kind of looking at and we're going to look at some more. John the Baptist was struggling and let's take a look at that. We're now in Luke 7. Verse 18 through 19, so John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord asking, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now, this is odd of John to ask this. He's the one that prophesied. He's the one. We read about that in chapter three. Now we're in chapter seven and he's asking, are you the one? What is going on here? What you need to know is in chapter three, verse 20, he's thrown into prison He had confronted Herod, and he's thrown into prison. He's experiencing some dark days and some dark days of doubt. And one of the reasons he's experiencing these dark days of doubt has to do with how his expectations and his own prophecies didn't pan out the way he expected and in the timing that he expected. Let's keep reading. In Luke 7, 22 through 23, this is Jesus. He replied to these messengers. I mean, why is it that John couldn't go to Jesus himself? He's in prison. He sends messengers. So Jesus replies to the messengers, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with prophecy are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. Should 
Remind us of what we've just read about the declared truth when he read from Isaiah 61 and today in in your hearing, as you're listening, this has been fulfilled. And now he's saying the same thing to John, exactly what Isaiah says, mid-sentence, up to this point, this is happening. Take a look at what's happening. And he describes one thing after another thing after another thing in fulfillment of Isaiah 61. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. That's part of his answer to John the Baptist, which just is wild to me. John the Baptist had prophesied that Jesus is the one. And let's back up and take a look at what John had prophesied. Luke 3, 16 through 17. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I more powerful than I am, is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. So let's just summarize. John is saying, okay, This one that's coming is way bigger than me. He's baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's taking a shovel. He's going to separate the crowd. He's going to separate the crowd from those that are his and those that are not his and those that are not his. He's going to judge and burn. Whoa. What is not happening in Jesus' ministry, at least in timing? Everything Jesus does is declaring favor, declaring favor, healing the sick, and releasing the captive, and setting people free. And where's the judgment? And where's the fire? And where's the Holy Spirit? And where's all this that I prophesied? He's not seeing it. And yet, what did Jesus do? He said, blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. He only gave John a picture of what he is doing. He never explained what he wasn't doing and why. And that's all John heard, and that was enough for John. Here's a quote on this screen. Doubts grow when you focus on what God is not doing. Doubts grow when you focus on what God is not doing. How are we doing today? Have we done for this last year? Have you done with the confusion that comes with mystery? Well, there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of mystery, and where there's a lot of confusion, there's things you don't know, and where there's a lot of confusion, things you don't know, doubts grow. And when you're focused on what God is not doing, your doubts get larger and larger and larger, and Jesus says, why don't you focus on what I am doing? Here's what I'm doing, and he names things off, and for John, that was enough. He didn't explain why he's not doing what he's not doing. Doesn't that sound a lot like your life? It sounds an awful lot like my life, and it sounds an awful lot like our time. And every time since Jesus. Place yourself in a persecuted country. Place yourself in a place of persecution. And wouldn't you be asking yourself, why is he allowing this to happen? Why can't he lift this now? Why isn't he interceding on my behalf? Why does he let this happen to my child? Why does he let this happen to my family? Why does he let this happen to my dad? Why does he let this happen to my wife? Why is he not moving? And he says, 
would you focus on what I am doing? This and this and this and this. And blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. We are in a period that's pre-second coming. It's confusing and it's a mess. It's an overlap between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And it's always when we focus on what God isn't doing, it's darkness we're focusing on and not how light is penetrating through. This is huge as it relates to how we cope with mystery. Even though there are certainties that our faith clings to. So let's be more like John. Because this was enough to carry him right through to the end of his life when he's beheaded. And Jesus just declares how powerful. He was the most declared, highest ranking from Jesus' perspective, prophet of the Old Testament. And then he says, but those of you who are going to be least in the kingdom will have it better than he did as far as your availability and access to the Spirit of God. Powerful stuff here. So many certainties are mysterious. Mystery point two, Jesus did not fit political expectations. And point number three, many certainties are confusing. So Jesus doesn't stop there. He challenges us and challenges us. Is this enough for you? And he draws out the confession, the certainty, and then immediately reorients the confession of certainty so that we will become more solid. And we see this in Luke 9, 18 through 21. Jesus asked them, his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist. John was already dead by then. Others, Elijah. Still others that one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. So he sees what Jesus is doing and judges correctly. He hangs on to the certainty correctly. He steps across the line and now he's the first one in the know. And in Matthew 16, uh, Jesus says, Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father has revealed this to you. So Jesus affirms it, embraces it. This is a certainty. He is God's Messiah. But what he goes into next is mystery. And it totally flipped Peter on his head and the rest of the disciples on their head. They didn't know what to make of this mystery because we keep reading Luke 9, 21 through 22. But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one. What? You are the Messiah and you're saying you are the Messiah and we're supposed to keep a secret? Like, are you crazy? How are we going to create this revolution that we've all been hoping for, the political expectation that everybody's living for, that we can throw off these Romans, make this thing happen? What do you mean keep it secret? And it gets worse. It is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. And they go, what? It doesn't even compute. In fact, in Matthew's version, Matthew 16, Peter tries to take Jesus to task, and Jesus says, Satan, get behind me. Okay? In Luke's version, we just continue on. Take, pick up from 
verse 23, it gets worse. It's not just Jesus who's going to die. Jesus is trying to reorient their thinking. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, you want a revolution? I'll show you how to have a revolution. Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. There's a when he comes in his glory that he left off in his explanation when he read Isaiah 61, stopped, because that's later. All of the prophets always kind of lumped those together in the prophecies. Nobody knew the mystery that there was going to be a first coming and a second coming and a long space between until Jesus begins to teach it and unveils this mystery. But they're clueless what all of this means. They're so confused. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words and the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. What they're thinking is, how is this a revolution? I don't get it. How is this going to work? I thought you were the mighty one and the Messiah and we're all going to rally together. We're going to overthrow the Romans. How can this be? Now, I have a question. Do you think it's at this point that Judas veers off track? I didn't sign up for this. What, to deny myself and take up a cross? That's execution. The Romans win under execution. No, we win following you. What are you talking about? That can't be right. And not only is it right, it's right for Jesus to die so that we can be saved and experience the victory that he's promising to us. And here's what most of us still don't get. It's still right in the way of victory for our lives today. The way of victory for our life today is to learn how to die to self so that we can be resurrected with the Spirit's presence and power in a fully yielded life. I'm all in. Whatever you say goes... That's how this movement will have power and overtake the world. It is not political. It gets political later at his second coming when he overthrows kings and kingdoms. But right now it's a hidden kingdom within us where we're willing to die and follow him and make a difference with our enemies, with the Gentiles. Wait, I am one. <laughs> I was a Gentile. There was one over by this strategy. To be clear, Jesus repeats himself. Luke 9, 43 through 45. Well, Everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing, he told his disciples. Now, he just performed a notable miracle that was obviously overpowering the powers of darkness. 
He says in verse 44, let these words sink in. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Apparently it hadn't sunk in. He says it again. But they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it. Why is that? Because there's wearing lenses of expectations of what it's supposed to be. And this just doesn't fit. And because it doesn't fit, they don't get his words. What does this parable mean? I don't get it. This one is, I don't understand what he's saying. But it's not unclear. It's very clear. But they're afraid to ask him about it. Again, are you focusing on what God is not doing? Or are you listening and focusing on what he is doing? So I'd like to finish the story where we left off. Actually, I better speed it up. <laughs> so Adrian Rogers asked the guy, did you know that there is a promise in, to an honest doubter? There's a promise to an honest doubter from God. It goes like this, and on the screen is John 7. 16 through 17, Jesus answered them, My teaching isn't mine, but from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. Now, just in case this is just words to you, let me just remind you what we normally think. We normally think, first you get rid of your doubt and you believe, and then you obey. You believe first, then you obey, right? Well, Jesus is flipping it on its head a little bit, and this should remind us of our roadmap to certainty. I'll put the roadmap to certainty on the screen just to remind you. It begins with hearing, believing, living, then knowing. That living piece is not going to be bypassed. If you don't live it, you will doubt it. Let's back up to the scripture again that I just had up here. If anyone wants to do his will, you got to live it. He will know whether the teaching is from God. You'll never know it if you don't do it. You'll never know it if you don't surrender to it and try it. You'll never accept it because you'll always resist it. It's when you finally yield to it and live it, the merits of it begin to rise in your thinking and you're convinced and you're in the know. Jesus really is from God, and he's proclaiming the truth here. And so Adrian Rogers said to the doubter this phrase or this statement, would you be willing to sign a statement? He's talking to the Cape Canaveral guy whose powerful mind but had never submitted and is a powerful doubter. Would you... Be willing to sign this statement. God, I don't know whether you exist or not, but I want to know. And because I want to know, I will make an honest investigation. And because it is an honest investigation, I will follow the results of that investigation wherever they lead me, regardless of the cost. Until you're ready to investigate and follow where the investigation leads, you will always see the certainties shrouded in mystery. And you'll focus on what is you're not seeing instead of focusing on what you are seeing. 
this gentleman turned to Adrian Rogers and said, yes, I'd be willing to try that. And lo and behold, his life turned around. And then a number of years later, he came back, a leader in a church, and just they could celebrate the goodness of God in his life. Marriage saved, lives saved, people just affected in the way that the Spirit can do that when you surrender. So here we have it for ourselves, an opportunity to say yes to something like this. I've challenged you to look at Luke and Acts, to read it like this, as an investigation that isn't just information, but hear it, to believe it, to live it, so that you can know it. And until you will go there, your doubts won't be overcome. But if you go there, you'll find yourself in this place of seeing the certainty that he's showing us of the things that you've been taught. It's like, oh, it's so solid. It makes so much sense. So let me pray with you. Probably a prayer that's similar to what Adrian Rogers led this guy to pray. And if you're right there, maybe you're willing to pray it as well. Dear God, if you were there, I want to make an honest effort to seek you, to look at the revelation and investigate it as you've given it, and to see if the things that you teach and say are true by living it, to see if it is so. Lord, I ask you to reveal to my mind more and more of you. I want to be honest about my doubts and seek certainty. Boy, if there is an eternity beyond this life, I want it to be with you. And Lord Jesus, if you have truly the authority you claim, I want to know you as Savior. I want to follow you. So even as we each step from this place, wherever we are, and whatever status of our faith, we step towards you. And we ask you to show us what is our next best step to honor you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We'll have a prayer team to the right of the stage and uh, ask you to come if you'd like to have prayer about anything. I would like you in this service particularly to be praying for uh, baptisms that are coming in the next two services. Um, I would like to let you know that next week the title is The Kingdom of God Has Come Near. And I hope to see you next week. God bless.